Mark chapter 5. Let's hear God's word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. When they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many Physicians had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. 
Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. We live in interesting times, don't we? There, there are huge challenges before us as a society, as um, Christian believers, and um, as a world order. I was uh, amused just uh, recently noticing how everyone is weighing in with their opinions on Ukraine and Russia, the obvious big problem that we have to solve somehow or other today. Um, uh, my first, uh, my first um, album as music was actually by Pink Floyd. That was my original, given to me by my brother. You probably, none of you know who Pink Floyd is. Look at that. Anyway, the, 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 the one of the engines of that was someone called Roger Waters, and he's written an open letter giving his view on the Ukraine. It's, it's a problem that needs to be solved, a big problem. And there are other big problems, um, divisiveness in our society, um, opportunity, economic problems. I mean, you look at uh, the pound is soon, it's only just, you know, it's like $1.10 or something like that now, and... It, and, and um, so incensed do the parliamentarians feel about this that they've threatened to resign, to resign en masse if it ever gets to be one, you know, one, one pound to one dollar, uh, that sort of thing. And so there are challenges there. And of course, there are economic challenges in America too. Um, and, and then there are educational challenges. There's, it's, it's all over, it's, there's all that. And then within church circles, uh, those of us who, have, who are church people, which is, of course, many of us here, not all. We always have people who are trying to figure out Christianity who come to college church. But if we're church people, I suppose we're all aware of the challenges facing faith in the Western world. A new survey has recently come out predicting ongoing uh, decline in and commitment to church in America in the next 20, 30 years. I mean, these surveys are... I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't know what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow, let alone what's going to happen in 20 years' time. But nonetheless, it's an extrapolation from various data, and it isn't encouraging. It's a challenge. Uh, or even church attendance. Uh, there's a new survey that's come out from Lifeway, which is a Southern Baptist sort of organization that does this kind of thing, showing that among evangelicals, however they defined evangelical, and I haven't looked at the survey closely enough to see whether they had any kind of biblical definition for evangelical or just a social one, 
But anyway, among evangelicals, the percentage of those who think you need to come to church at all is, is, is massively decreased. In other words, there are people who call themselves evangelicals who think you don't even need to come to church, which biblically speaking is bizarre. I mean, we are the body of Christ. How can you be a part of Christ if you're not part of his body? And yet, so that's so there are, there are chance, so here you have the world, society, politics, economics, the global scene, all sorts of challenges. And here on the other side, you have the church, uh, not our church, but the church, capital T, capital C, with all sorts of challenges that you're aware of, you're a church person. What's What's the solution? Is it, what's the solution for one side and what's the solution for the other side? And here, I think, you've got to remember when you look at Mark's gospel that he is deliberately designing his story to send um, messages, to give uh, their teaching units, to send a message about uh, Jesus and about the gospel. And they're they're different. Like last week, we saw Mark chapter 4 was all about the power of the word. There are all these parables, and then there's the, the study of the storm. It's all about the power of the word. That's Mark 4. Mark 5 is also all about something. And there's a lot of details here, and there are these stories, but it's all driving at one message. And Mark indicates what he's doing here with a geographical um, uh, geographical indicators. And so you've got one set of stories that are on one side of the sea or the lake. Of course, it's the Lake of Galilee. It's not the Atlantic or the Pacific. We're in, uh, we're, we're in Israel. This is the Lake of Galilee. And it's on one side of that sea or lake where you get all the demon-possessed uh, man and legion and all that and the pigs. That's all on one side. And then he crosses to the other side and there you get the synagogue ruler and, and Jairus and all that on the other side. And in either case, Jesus has the answer. He's the solution to these extreme challenges. And what Mark is saying is whether we're talking about that side of the lake, which was the Gerasenes and the Decapolis, which is the region of, uh, of Roman influence and pagan influence and the world that side or this other side where you come to the synagogue ruler and the challenges of church as we would put it today in either case Jesus has a solution and, and that is something that I think many one of the ironies of being a gospel preacher is many people if you if I'm talking with a Christian Many people will assume that Jesus and the Bible and the gospel and all that is sort of the basics. You know, I've checked box, I've made a decision for Jesus. But when I face a really big problem, I need, to, I, I need some practical help. And then by the same token, ironically, one of the ironies of being a preacher of the gospel is when you go to a non-Christian and you talk about Jesus and the gospel, they assume that's for religious people. That's not for me. I'm not a religious person. 
But here Mark is saying is actually the reverse is true. In either case, on both sides of the lake, both sides of the sea, Roman pagan society, Judaistic religious synagogue, church world, Jesus has the solution. And if that's the case, this morning, we have the answer to some of the biggest problems of our world and society and church today, right in front of us. So let's see what it says. Uh, first, we have um, this side of the sea or the lake. This, of course, is the first half of the chapter. It's the Gerasenes which are somewhere in the Decapolis. The Decapolis was ten cities, that's what the word means. And there are ten cities that were Roman cities. And so you're in this Roman area. And to make sure that we understand just how non-religious this area is, uh, Mark underlines various parts of this region. Uh, First of all, it's an unclean spirit. So we're now not in the ritual cleanliness of Judaistic ideal. We're in an unclean place with an unclean spirit. Uh, And then uh, the, um, the man who is possessed by demons, those demons have a name, and the name is Legion. We're so familiar with that Legion name We miss the point that has been made. Remember, this is the Decapolis. This is the ten Roman-controlled cities. This is the Gerasenes. This is pagan area. This is the place of legion dominance, Roman power dominance, the Roman legionaries. This man is the ultimate expression of what it means to be dominated by the Roman legionaries. Spiritually speaking, the demons he has are legion. It's the the Roman, pagan, non-Judaistic world. And then, of course, there are the pigs. If you wanted to make it as clear as possible that this is non-Judaistic, you would find a great herd of pigs, right? Thousands of the things. So this is very much non-Judaistic. And, and what is more, the problem that is there, there is a problem, this man who's uh, out of his mind, uh, can't sleep, he's cutting himself, he's, um, he's got some sort of supernatural strength, which the literature of those who are involved in exorcisms, whatever you think about that, will... I'll give a little bit of teaching on that in a moment, but say that one of the signs of this sort of thing is a sort of supernatural strength. And clearly he, was, he had that. No one could bind him anymore. He was breaking chains. Um, and he's among the tombs. Uh, that is, he's as good as dead. That's the point that's been made. And unclean. And there are pigs, <laughs> thousands of the things. And it's legion. He's possessed by 
the pagan, non-religious. What's the solution? Well, of course, the solution is Jesus. Jesus uh, uh, casts the demons out. Don't get all worried in your mind about him sending to the pigs. I've, I've read all sorts of commentaries that spend ages talking about was it fair for Jesus to have killed 2,000 pigs. I mean, it's like this isn't a text that's either pro or against environmentalism. The, 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 the point is that they're pigs. They're unclean. Now, clearly, Jesus values the life of this man more than 2,000 pigs. That's for sure true. But again, it's this ultimate expression of dominance by um, non-religious, secular problems. And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And those who are converted by Jesus, we find that he's now clothed in his right mind. That's a, that's a symbol of what it means to become a Christian. When you become a Christian, now you go, oh, now I understand life. I'm now in my right mind. So it's Jesus' solution and people who have become Christians now witnessing. Go home, tell your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. And so he did. Now before we apply this, we need to make sure we don't misunderstand what has been said about um, demon possession and mental health. The Bible does not uh, believe that every person who struggles with mental health, which of course this person was an extreme, you know, he's cutting himself, he's self-harming. The Bible does not think that everyone who struggles with mental health is demon-possessed. So don't read this story. I come across Christians who do. Read the story and say, underneath every mental illness, there's demonic possession. That's not, not what the Bible teaches. Uh, if, and I've come across liberal scholars who sometimes say that. But it's not the case. So you want to examine that more. Read through actually Luke's gospel. Luke, of course, who was a physician. And very carefully separated out physical illness from spiritual problems. Uh, or an example from the Old Testament would be Elijah, who after Mount Carmel, his famous conflict with the, 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 uh, the uh, Baal worshippers, and they had this huge spiritual victory. Afterwards, had a massive emotional decline and was depressed and even suicidal. But there's no, no indication in the text that Elijah was sinning. certainly not that he was demon-possessed or something. No, he he was experiencing what many, even godly Christians do experience, which is struggles with sadness at times. We live in a sad world. If you want to explore that more, read up Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, Baptist preacher, uh, you can find it online, but if you just Google Spurgeon and depression, he writes a long article about his own experiences of depression. Great godly man. So that, he says, his brothers and sisters will be encouraged that they're not alone. But all that said, 
The point of this text is that when God and his word withdraws from society, what you tend to have is disorder and chaos and confusion and social breakdown and division. And the solution is Jesus. One of the most amazing, uh, we've just heard one conversion story on the video, but one of the most amazing conversion stories I was aware of was a man who was struggling with all sorts of issues and came to church. And in that church service, the text, Blessed are the peacemakers, was read and explained. And he was put in his right mind. The solution to our world's problems is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Mark is saying. Even among the even the Decapolis, even the Gerasenes, even, <laughs> even a demon-possessed man, Jesus is the guy you want. But then what about the religious uh, area? So we come to the other side of the lake of the sea, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And again, he's beside the sea. But now we're not in the pluralistic pagan Roman legion-dominated side of the lake. We're on the other side where synagogue and church and religion is dominant. So here come one of the rulers of the synagogue. So it's not just the synagogue, it's one of the high-ups, the priest, the pastor, the, one of the elders, one of the deacons, a Bible study group leader, a president of an evangelical organization. One, one of those guys comes up. This is religious land now. And as so often, um, there are, here this man has a deep problem that he cannot solve. The irony, there's the ruler of the synagogue coming to Jesus. So easy, isn't it, in church life uh, to think that everyone is okay. We come to church, and, you know, I can see you all now. You all look beautiful. You clean up really well. I saw some of you on a Saturday morning at a, at a sports game, and you looked a little different then, but now you look perfect. And you come and you think, everyone's, everyone, look, I'm a pastor, and I know. The human condition is such that every single person in this room, without exception, either now or has or will soon face a problem that is beyond their ability to solve. And that's where this man was. 
he also falls at Jesus' feet. But unlike the demon-possessed man, he's not trying to get rid of Jesus by some kind of magical incantation. He's asking for Jesus for help. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Oh, brothers and sisters, can you hear the pain? He's imploring him earnestly. My little girl is about to die. It's fascinating to me that phrase, little girl or little daughter, because actually we know verse 42 says that she was 12. And I've, I've had 12-year-olds, and I've got one 12-year-old, and I'll soon have another 12-year-old by the conveyor belt of age. And I know full well that a 12-year-old doesn't like to be called a little boy or little girl. Physically, they're almost adults. You're getting there. But for dad, she will always be his little girl. Can you hear the, the emotion? My little daughter, Lord. And Jesus has compassion on him and plans to go with him. But then, as is so often in Mark's gospel, he interweaves another part of the story to make the same point, but to ratchet up the, mo- the emotion, to increase the pathos. So along comes this woman who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years, maybe 12 years for the 12 years of the little girl's life. Perhaps that's intended to be an echo, I'm not sure. She'd suffered under many physicians and had spent all she had, but she was no better but rather grew worse. She had some kind of, probably some kind of um, disorder of um, the menstrual cycle, most people think, but obviously we don't know and we don't need to know. The point is that she had a discharge of blood. She was sick for a long time, and she was getting worse. She'd been to the doctors. Now, as a, again, we, I gave a little brief teaching about mental health and, and uh, demonic possession so that we don't confuse the two or conflate the two. Similarly here, here's this woman. She's been to many physicians and she's got no better, only worse. But look, it is extremely unwise, unwise for a Christian to not um, be thankful to God for modern medical practice and science. That's not to say that doctors always get everything right. Clearly they don't. But it is a common grace of God that we have modern medicine. Uh, Anesthetics. Can you imagine a world where there were no pain killers at all? Can you imagine what that would have been like? We live in a time of extraordinary medical advance. Some of you know I myself, not that long ago, was reliant on a, on a skilled medical surgeon. To Who knows what would have happened if he hadn't operated at that right moment and done the right thing. Now, of course, if the previous guy hadn't messed things up, I wouldn't have needed the second guy. But, that, <laughs> you know, so um, doctors aren't perfect, but we're glad for them. We're glad for medical science. But we all know that there are times when 
And every doctor will, who's wise will admit this, that really it's the body that heals. Hippocrates said this, the great ancient um, founder of medical science, I suppose you could say. Uh, and a godly doctor knows that really God heals. They're just a part of the process, helping the body. And at any, But there can come times, as happened this one, where you go to one doctor after another after another and things don't get better, they get worse. And that's her situation. She's in the crowd. She reaches out and touches Jesus. And of course, as you know, that's the touch of faith. Jesus is looking around. All the other people are pressing against him. He's been touched by lots of people. But only hers is a believing touch. And so here we are in this crowd of many people. It's good to be a part of a crowd who come to worship. That's a good thing. But if you're to experience God's help this morning to forgive your sins, to give you new power, you need to reach out and touch him by faith. Only she was healed because only she had the touch of faith. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Some people are healed, aren't they? I've prayed for people and seen people healed. I had a friend I was at university with who was diagnosed as a child with a, um, a, brain, a, a brain tumor that was going to kill him, and a missionary laid hands on his head and healed him. And as far as I know, he's still alive today and is fine. It happens, but it doesn't always happen. And so we come even more pathos, even more emotion. While Jesus is still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Can you imagine being there? He's just heard. His hopes must be so high. He's just heard Jesus say to this daughter, you're healed. And then he hears, but your daughter is dead. Well, that too is part of the Christian experience, isn't it? Some Christians seem to get all the blessing. But your daughter is dead. God seems to wait forever to do anything. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. Why is he delaying? And then when he finally does something, it's too late. Your daughter is dead. This is, you read the Psalms. Believers in God have had these sort of experiences over and over and over again. We live in a fallen world. Even if we are healed here, unless Jesus returns, one day we all will die, and so we will not be healed in this world. Any healing here is only temporary of course. And so he's told not to bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus says, do not fear. Just believe. And he goes with them and he takes 
Peter and James and John, the brother of James and uh, the mother and the, the father and the mother, we're told, verse 40, also go into where the child is. Jesus tells uh, the professional mourners who are gathered. So this is a ruler of the synagogue, significant person. When someone dies, they would gather professional mourners to wail and lead people in, in, in mourning for, for the dead. That They've all gathered. And Jesus said, stop that. Uh, she's only asleep. But what he doesn't mean, obviously, the story doesn't mean is that she's literally just sleeping. Because they wouldn't be amazed if she'd just been sleeping. The point is that from his divine perspective, um, he's just, uh, just going to wake her up. For the Christian, death is a mere temporary interlude before we experience life with Jesus. Listen, the apostle says, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, we will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of the eye, the mortal must clothe itself with immortality. We will be changed. And so in this insertion of Jesus' resurrection power at this moment, he takes her by the hand and says, Talithi, Talitha, Kumi. It's like, um, uh, little girl, wake up. Such is Jesus' power over death. And one day, if you're a Christian, you too will hear the Master's voice. My son, wake up. Little girl, wake up. I love how practical Jesus is. <laughs> After all she's been through, she's probably hungry. You better give her something to eat. And so, my friends, on either side of the lake, for all the issues in the world, what's going to solve them? The powerful proclamation of the gospel through thousands and thousands of people whose lives have been changed, telling what Jesus has done for them. And then on this side of the lake in the church, with all the, the practical issues of, of suffering and pain, what's going to stop? The story of the gospel, the power of the gospel, that we know that one day we will rise from the dead. Jesus is the solution on both sides of the lake. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we've just skimmed over the surface of some of these very profound challenges that we face. 
you know, mental health, physical illness, disappointment. Lord, it can seem to us that to say that Jesus is the solution is true but simplistic, right but shallow. Help us, Lord, to reach out and touch you by faith. What a simple thing it would have been for that woman to just touch Jesus's, uh, touch Jesus. And so often, Lord, in our human pride, we want complicated answers, long programs, expensive treatments. And yet here you are among us. saying, do not fear, only believe. And by your grace, would you give us faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.